Welcome to the Icelandic Roots podcast, where we celebrate the heritage, culture, and history of Iceland through stories, music, and interviews with interesting people. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Icelandic Roots podcast. I am Will. Hi, and I'm Natalie. And today's episode is focusing on Wayne Gudmundsson. Will had the opportunity to meet Wayne and interview him. So, Will, can you please tell us who is Wayne and tell us about his books? Wayne is a classic North Dakotan. That's all North Dakotans ought to know, whether you are of Icelandic descent or not. And that's because he is the photographer behind the world-famous Life in the Vast Lane photo. Do you know this photo? Yes, I have seen this photo framed in the museum in Hofsos. No way, really? So yes, I know it. I know it well. Oh, wow. Well, that's cool. Well, see, I had grown up seeing this photo, knowing it was a cool photo, but not knowing that it was taken right outside of mountain. At the very bottom of that hill, just out of frame, is mountain. So Wayne grew up in the area and took that photo and for years has like studied his Icelandic heritage and his, he's a photographer by trade. He was a professor of photography at MSUM, Minnesota State University in Moorhead. He was good friends with Bill Holm, who you can learn all about in episode, the last episode, episode three. Yeah, <laughs> episode three. And before that, our episode all about Cowan Julius uh, is a, from a poet who, who was a poet, grew up in mountain as well. Uh, Wayne is a big fan of both of these men. And so it's cool to have him here reflecting. It's it's like we it's like we planned this out. Mm-hmm. It's as if we knew we were going to do it in this order. It's a it's a full circle. Yes. And that one photo, that life in the Vaseline, it was the image that I would show tourists who had never been to North America when they would read about the prairies and how different the landscape was from Iceland. I'd say if you. Don't believe me that it was flat? Look at this photo. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Wayne was recently the keynote speaker at the August the Deuce Festival at Mountain. For anyone who doesn't know, there are two major Icelandic festivals in North America. There's the one in Gimli, Manitoba in Canada, the Islandigadagarin or Icelandic Days. And then there's August the Deuce which is not far away in Mountain, North Dakota. I got to meet with him then and I had a big plan of like, all right, I'm going to ambush him after his talk and we're going to do the interview right there and uh, discuss everything I want to discuss. But we just ended up chatting uh, for an hour afterwards and until the whole uh, Icelandic Communities Association building there was empty, we just kept sitting there chatting until my parents finally honked the horn and told me to get in the car because we had to get the grandmas home (laughs) after a long day of deucing at the festival. He was sharing from his new book called A Song for Leave. It's a book of photographs accompanied with diary pages and some poetic musings of his. Leave is his daughter. And so by saying it's a song for leave, he's really kind of hearkening into the whole saga idea of a song as a story that you tell to your descendants about your ancestors. So trying to connect this big, big story of Icelandic immigration to the small story of his little daughter, Leave and her life and her understanding of this bigger story. 
I think that's one of the most important things about learning about your ancestors is you can see chronologically where you've come from, what decisions people made in your lineage to get to where you are. It makes so much more sense in a way to see how you fit into the world. <laughs> Knowing where our Icelandic immigrant ancestors came from Iceland, why they left Iceland, but it really helps to understand where you are in your community today. You can't really separate those. And so with Wayne creating this book for his daughter, I think it is so wonderful and so important. And I wish, I wish more of us had those. <laughs> But we can read his and kind of fill in the gaps within our own families and, you know, use Icelandic roots to trace our, our actual ancestors, too. He's got one quote here I'm going to share. He, on one of these pages, he says, At what point do people stop being emigrants and become immigrants? Is there a midpoint in the Atlantic where they are notified of the change in their collective status? I expect they remain emigrants until they die. And perhaps only later do their children begin to think of themselves as immigrants. So this whole book gets me thinking about that stuff in a, in a big way and, uh, and realizing that, uh, yeah, by having this story, it's important that we know what we can know about it because it really does change our whole understanding of ourselves and why we live here and why we are what we are. It's because we came from where we came from. So yes, indeed. I think Wayne does a great job of uh, reflecting on all of this. And uh, as he makes the case at the end, there is uh, this is worth thinking about and worth discussing, um, this grander story. And that's why he's put his work into building this book. Oh, I can't wait to hear your interview. <laughs> great. Well, let, let's get to it then. We'll start with Wayne reading a page from his book about Puffin's. There's another page later on in our interview that he'll read likening emigrants to puffins as well. So uh, we got a big puffin metaphor going on. Song for Leave is published by the NDSU Press and is available for purchase on their website. Westman Islands, Iceland, 16 August 1998. Sky clear. Wind two to five knots, north-northwest. The warm sun and gentle rocking put me to sleep on the ferry back to Thorlux, often on the main island. From a lawn chair, with a beer and binoculars in hand, I watched Leave and Jane scale the 300-foot extinct crater wall surrounding our campsite. After their descent, the three of us exchanged our varied perceptions on the height and difficulty of the climb. Every August, the adult puffins give the webbed boot to their young to head out to sea, to live, to fish, to mature. For the past several hundred years, many of these puffin pilgrims have gotten distracted by the lights of Jaime and ended up stranded in the city streets. The local children, armed with flashlights and boxes, rescue these wayfarers between midnight and three and then release them the next morning. That night, Leave joined forces with a new campground friend, one Trigvi Stephenson. Leave and Trigvi, an parental escort, headed into the city near midnight. I was awakened at 2 a.m. and found myself nose to beak with an equally shocked and disgusted young puffin. <laughs> After breaking camp the next morning, we headed in caravan to the beach. 
The release was a joyous, exciting, and sad occasion, filled with a curious hope and sense of purpose. The two hunters were, I think, surprised by the poignancy of the moment. So today, one small puffin heads out to sea. Here we are, we're sitting uh, at the MSUM library. So this is your former place of employment, yeah? What, what is it like to be back? Do you visit often? Uh, no, I don't. It was, it was really quite a nostalgic, pleasant walk as I came through the maiden gates. In fact, this just sounds hokey. I found myself sort of humming and, and thinking about the words of um, the, uh, the school song. Yeah, <laughs> you, you remember it. Yeah, I mean parts of it. It's so it's um, it was it was really it was really quite pleasant. I mean it's a beautiful day and the sun was shining. There's a few kids out and, and it's wonderfully quiet and and it runs sort of counter to when I was here in, in the throes of all the politics and the academic differences about this and that and people who think that the uh, academia is of one mind should only just go to a, any department meeting. <laughs> and they'll see that there's opinions from left and right. Right. So maybe it's kind of relief. You don't have to think about any of that stuff yeah, now. Yeah, this is just the best a visitor. Part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Great. Yeah. Well, what I'm interested in is this huge stack of books we have in front of us. It seems to me they are all sort of puzzle pieces that somehow help us understand this this big story of of what it means to be descended from Icelanders. So many different places to start, and I'm sure lots of people got into this whole story by different methods, you know? Maybe someone read Bill Holmes' book first and then learned about Iceland. Maybe somebody read the sagas first and got into it that way, but it's really changed for me the more I've learned and, like, putting this whole story together. I, th I think you're right about the, the jigsaw puzzle, um, and we have in front of us just... A modest, modest fraction of the books that are out there. Um, I just pulled some of mine. You know, I've got all of Bill's writings um, and David Arneson and, uh, and and other Canadian Icelandic writers. And then, of course, the sagas are there's there's all kinds of sagas. And then you couple that with you know our our trips to Iceland and um, our family's notion of what it is to be a uh, West Icelander and, uh, and the difference between people in Iceland and the people who are of Icelandic descent is very different. Right. Because it, it all is kind of hinged on why did emigration start and what did the people there think of it who stayed and when did these... Uh, Places like Vapnafjordur and Hafsos immigration centers come into being not that many years ago. So there was this tension between those who stayed and those who left, and why did they leave and why did they stay? All those questions. And like the faculty meetings, there are so many different opinions. There's not one sort of glossy road that says this is how it happened. And there's not one historian who is able to look at any amount of data and put together the perfect story and to say this is exactly what happened and why it happened there will always be differences of, of opinions yeah I think I think it, it's there's so many different filters 
if you will, if you can use that word, um, do you want to filter this through the writings of some of the the writers, the poets? Do you want to filter it through the uh, um, the religion of of the time, the religions of the time, um, through family histories and their their desire to better their lives and how they survived their early hard years and how they made something a new community and what was that community so all these filters somehow are overlaid on one another and um but i think the key to kind of getting at some of this is to look at those filters and then you know how you mesh those things together it's it's a complex thing yeah it's not linear right so I'm glad, I think, that the, one of the very first things I read about Iceland was this right here, the, the sagas of Icelanders. So this is the, the penguin-like collection of all these main old sagas, which are supposedly, most of them are like set in like the 800s, 900s, right? But these were all written in like the 1200s or so. Right, with Snorri Sturluson uh-huh. and his crew. Right. So do you have any favorite sagas? Or uh, what do these mean to you? Because when I read them first, I didn't really know what to expect. And on one hand, I was like quite surprised at how weird they were, you know? Like, on one hand, it's a story. But then uh, most of them, that, then it's just like a long list of names. And it's like, you're like talking about some character. And then suddenly, we're talking about that character's grandson, who has the same name and it, like it's confusing to read well, through. Yeah, I think you have to understand like the patronymic naming system and you know in the the son and daughter take the father's first name and they become so and so, you know, Goodman's son, Goodman's daughter. Um, so you have that um, and then you also have the the tendency of the early Icelanders to give it was Goodman the powerful it was Helgi the Lean. It was the, the, you know, the, that kind of naming it gets confusing. And then it's it's sort of impenetrable because the sagas all more or less start with there was a man so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, uh, related to such and such. And and you just know, don't know where to go. Um, I, so I, th- I think in answer to your question, the Njal saga for me was a great, is, is still a favorite. And, and later, uh, Greta's saga for another reason, because I, um, there's an island just off of Hossos where that whole thing sort of wraps up. But, but I was, I was just fascinated with Njal's saga. Is that one of the outlaw sagas? Is, is Njal running from the law? I think they all were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but the, 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 and the, then the marriage of, of history and myth was another thing that took me a while to kind of get my head around because both existed you know the the hidden folks the Hulda folks were there and there were giants and there were witches and but i found in the al saga an insight into the power of the icelandic women i mean they were always key players they might be meddlesome they might be sort of poking someone to go for but they were they were strong folks and from the Niall saga, the one that I remember is Gunnar is the hero who can run the fastest and fight the hardest and jump the highest, et cetera, et cetera. So they end up in very close to where my um, grandmother's parents came from, which is right across from Eyjafjallajökull, where the volcano, the volcano erupted X number of years ago, not that many years ago. 
So anyway, they're <clears throat> they're cornered in the house, and one of the battle strategies was something called the burning in. So if someone was hiding in the house, they would just light on fire, and when they'd come out, they would get they'd kill them. Mm-hmm. So Gunnar is in the house, and and uh, he is he's uh, firing away with his bow and arrow, and um, he's with his wife, and his bowstring breaks. And she has long hair, and he says to her, will you weave me a new bowstring from your hair? And she says, is it important to you? And he said, my life depends on it. And then she says, do you remember when you slapped me? Wow. <laughs> so, demand a quick apology first. Um, yeah. She did not uh, make a bowstring for him. Oh, no. <laughs> so I said, well, now we're dealing with some strong people here. <laughs> yeah, wow. And that's interesting, because then, okay, moving to the next book on the stack here, uh, this Nancy Marie Brown, Song of the Vikings. Have you read this one? No. Uh, okay, I would love to lend this to you okay, as well. We'll swap books here today. This was really, really cool, and I've read Nancy's next book, uh, The Real Valkyrie, which just came out like a couple weeks ago, and that is all about kind of reanalyzing what the academics have known about Viking warrior women in the past. This one here dives into Snorri. Snorri was writing the sagas, a lot of them, for a king. Uh, He was a young king. He was a Norwegian Christian king. He was like 15 years old. And he wrote a couple of these big sagas for him specifically. So this book explains why some of the sagas have a sort of a Christian theme to them or how some of them were because Snorri's definitely trying to get this guy to uh, think the sagas are cool. The Icelanders, those Icelanders, the intelligentsia of the time, were the court reporters for the Norwegian courts. Mm -hmm. And the book Heimskringla, Circle of Life, was about the Norwegian kings and is written by Icelanders, those Icelanders. Yeah. And so they had that, they had that function and then I think it would be fun to talk with someone who knows more about this. Right. And it helped me, because first I just read these sagas. I was like, okay, that's, these are some ancient texts. But again, yeah, this is written like 300, 400 years later um, from when they actually happened, right? Yeah. So to understand that whoever wrote these had their own political agenda going into it and it wasn't just a pure story preserved for culture's sake. like. Whenever you're a historian is looking back at something and explaining it, like it's coming from a certain perspective, a certain bias. I, I think that's, that's, that's part of it. I also think that, and, and I've had this notion for some time, that there are three things that are very important to Icelanders at large. And, and um, one is their language, you know, um, you know, there was a committee at the university whose job it was to preserve the language. I mean, this is Old Norse. It's as close as we have to the language spoken by the Vikings. Uh, as the other Scandinavian countries evolved and were affected by, by civilization, Iceland wasn't as much. So the Icelanders have always preserved their language. And I think there was a desire on behalf of Snorri and company to preserve these stories. So there's a legitimate one. And yes, it probably was a, had a political spin to it, but that was present. And the other thing 
it, the Icelanders hold near and dear to their hearts is their land. So it's the language, the land, um, because that's all they had, frankly. And the, the stories evolve in and around the landscape, and roads were built so that you didn't want to disturb the, the holder folk who lived under certain rocks, so the road would go here, but also just the beauty of the land. And the third thing is themselves. And by saying they loved themselves, is they, they uh, as they still often do when two Icelanders get together, they figure out how it was they're related. And so if there's a small number of people, um, and so that their connection was always important. And this goes way back to the settlement of Iceland, the Landnamabók. Um, you know, recorded those people who came with with Anglefjord um, uh, Arnason in 874. They wanted to record where they came from, and they weren't Viking outlaws. These were people who left left Iceland and stopped by the Faroe Islands and stopped by Northern um, Scotland and Ireland and picked up slaves and other Iceland uh, other folks, and and they went there to start a new life. And so I think they wrote this in defense of, you know, we are seeking this new place. And um, and so they recorded it. And so they've been very, again, that's language in themselves. They're, they're, they're protecting themselves or recording their journey, if you will. And that continued right up to the immigration in the late 1800s. You know, the, the book of, of recording who left and who was in the party and what ship were they sailing on from which farm they came, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then the sagas fall in the middle. So language has always been so important. And and the oral tradition, even up to like Cowan Julius, in, uh, who settled in Mountain, North Dakota, the, the farmers would get together, in my experience growing up there, and they'd recite the poetry of Cowan Julius. So the, the, the oral history and then the written history you know, i.e. the language and who they are, played out large. Yeah, and that's another thing that is so fascinating about Icelanders, is how many of them brought books with them to the New World. And from what I understand, Icelanders brought way more books than other ethnic groups, uh, because they loved reading and they loved the language and keeping track of all this stuff. And like, I think a lot of them knew, obviously knew how to read and uh, were interested in it. And they had they formed lending libraries, and so the the and there's an expression, you know, better shoeless than bookless. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, so I mean yeah. the wow. the books were 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 very important to them. Right. If you only have a small number of things you can bring with you, you'd think books would be like the least important. You know, maybe one book, maybe a Bible if that's important to you. But they brought lots of books, yeah. and and the newspapers. So. The from Fari, from Fari, mm -hmm. this was founded like immediately when they arrived to Gimli. So I I just watched this uh, Vesterfarar, Westward Bound, this interesting documentary series by RUV in Iceland. It came out in 2014. Big deep dive into the Icelandic emigration, uh, and it explained the from Fari newspaper was founded like the very day they arrived like their their ship like basically had to pull over because it was too icy on lake winnipeg and they just had to stop and they're like okay this is going to be gimli now and the very same year they got there some of them founded this newspaper 
which is just amazing to me again because it's like you they were struggling to survive like they didn't even have a house to sleep in and like <laughs> they came in late in the year too and and they didn't survive that first winter they didn't know how to fish under the ice the the indigenous people native americans sort of helped them with that um it was a terrible time and then, then to think that they had to have a vehicle for public discourse right away mm -hmm. we have to talk about the issues and save up to raise a money for a printing press and and everything like what a huge investment so the, yeah so that that need to document and the need for discourse and it was even though that they were heated discussions on pretty much anything and everything um, they were done in a civil fashion and some of the some of the most prominent Icelanders of that time uh, were violently opposed to other people's views, but they had great respect for their for one another. And I mean, that's pretty laudable. Think about where we are now uh, in our political scene and uh, the demonization of of one another, right. as opposed to getting at the ideas. And so they. Uh, they were an argumentative lot. <laughs> okay, there, that brings me to this Cowan quote I've got to mention, which was just in this well, Vesterfather documentary I watched last night. So Cowan talking about how Icelanders are very argumentative just by nature, but in a sort of respectful way uh, as well. Cowan said, This clearly isn't godliness, nor patriotic faithfulness, but pure Icelandic hatefulness and downright damned resentfulness. So maybe he was, you know, being a little exaggerating there for, for effect, but explaining people just like to argue, and <laughs> they found ways to do so, especially in, in the newspapers. Yeah, indeed, and, and they, um, they, were, they expected a response. And so in Framfari, you'll hear one, one notion of how something should be conducted should the two views on Icelandic Lutheranism, uh, should they coexist, should they continue in a separate geographical place? And, uh, and how, how does one interpret the Bible? Is it, is it literary, is it, uh, or literal, excuse me, or are, are these uh, metaphors or um, parables that we can learn how to conduct ourselves in a better fashion? So would you want to set up this book, um, which goes into sort of a biography of the Reverend Paul Thorlikson, but uh, as it relates to the religious fights that happened up in Gimli? And yeah, yeah. So the book is called Pioneer Icelandic Pastor, The Life of Reverend Paul Thorlikson. It's, it's, it's a history of, of religion at that time and of settlement as seen through two characters, Paul Thorlaksson, who was trained in the uh, Norwegian Lutheran Synod fashion, and um, a dear early friend of his and colleague, Jon uh, uh, Bjarnason. And they very soon took very different positions on interpretation of the Bible. As the Icelanders strive to find some kind of place to live and and there were strong feelings of not wanting to assimilate, but to maintain the Icelandicness of themselves. And as they tried different locations in Wisconsin, Canada, um, so forth, and eventually ended up in 
Gimli in New Iceland, New Eastland. So it traces not just his story, but the emigration story. And I think it's very revealing because it's, it's, it's very well researched and documented. Do you have, like, what's the best book on Stefan G? No, and I see that that I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Stefan G. Stephenson's monument is just down from Hofsos. Okay. Just as you turn left to go up to up to Hofsos, it's right there. But I'd like to know more about him. I'm, yeah, and he sounds like the one I would like the most of all three of us. That's what I should do. Because yeah. Paul Thorlickson is not, I don't think I'd want to be around my great grandfather or Paul Thorlickson very long. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because so I read Paul's deathbed letter and he tells this very s sincere story and it's moving, you know, how he came down from Gimli and he, I mean, he truly believed the people were not going to survive up there. And he was like, we have to go or we're not going to survive. Maybe it was also this petty kind of squabbling about interpreting the Bible. At some point, like, what difference does it make? Like, you all need to stick together and just survive here. But he really thought it was best if they go. And so they went. Um, and people, the Norwegians especially, gave them so much support in that transition. Well, the Norwegians sent it because of Thorlogsen. So his tie back there... And some people said, we don't want that money. So Paul eventually succeeded in convincing his followers to move from Gimli, New Iceland, down to Mountain in North Dakota. And so that's what's interesting to me. Like, they not only just disagreed about interpreting the Bible, but it, it led to this whole movement where he was, like, willing to, to move them. And so as I'm learning more about this whole story and these divisions... It's striking me that, you know, if, if these arguments had gone out differently, maybe there would still be a, a larger Icelandic presence in North America. Maybe more people would still be speaking Icelandic here. But for one reason or, or another, they let these differences really, really divide them, right? And when Paul came down to North Dakota, I feel like they had cut cut the community in half and uh, made it less likely for the whole Icelandic dream to survive in North America? Well, I think there was this sort of utopian notion that if they found the right spot, all would be well. And, you know, there were Icelanders that went to Brazil, um, a little place called Curtiba, and that didn't work. And there was a contingent that went up to Alaska, and that didn't work. Um, there was... In 1853, there's a contingent that went to Spanish Fork, Utah, and became Mormons. Um, there were there was a logging site up in uh, Ontario, um, and w in Wisconsin, and when the possibility opened up for a an Icelandic community, and in thanks to Lord Dufferin, who then was the um, Governor General, if that's the correct term, of Canada, they. Um, ask the Ukrainians who were there and the indigenous peoples were there, not ask, they told them to leave. This was now New Iceland. And so that was the hope. And of course, they came there at the wrong time of the year. The conditions weren't good. It was harsh climate. Uh, religious differences appeared. But they never really found their sort of utopian piece of land. Right. And to your point, if, if they had, would it have been different? Um, it's really hard to say. Yeah. And this goes back to why they left Iceland in, in the first place, too. So we were discussing, like, in the late 1800s, 
when the mass migration period, people leaving Iceland, it was also like they were just in the wrong spot, kind of, right? Most of the people who left came from the northeast of Iceland, where they had settled during a warm time, and it was a good place to settle. But at that point, it, it was getting colder, and it was people were realizing that corner of Iceland was not a good place to be. Um, yeah, to a degree. There was immigration that took place um, from all over, but the greatest, as you say, came from the northeast. And I think it had to do with, even now, 5% of Iceland is, is arable. So there's not a lot of farmland to um, sustain people. And as conditions changed a bit, improved slightly, families lived longer and there's less space for them. So then they had a, a climate change and things got colder and Akaredi was frozen in more than once. So you didn't have supply ships coming in, going out. Uh, times were hard. There was less land available that was, that was arable. And in 1875, Aska erupts, the winds from the southwest, it blows north, the ash northeast. It wasn't like lava flows chased them off, it was just simply the ash killed the, uh, um, the grass, uh, sheep had less, times were hard. And then it was a push-pull too. Land opened up, you know, homesteading in the United States opened up, so there's places where people could get free land if they, if they uh, made it sustainable. And then I think, uh, you know, they tried a number of spots and when New Iceland opened up, um, all those elements sort of came together and more people moved. Yeah, and this, uh, this Vesterfather documentary I just watched last night went uh, deeper into the other economic issues that were happening at the time that might have convinced people to leave. Apparently a lot of farmers were sort of indentured servants, like risking their lives, doing all this dangerous work and then not really seeing any of the profits for it, so they were all primed to seek better opportunities. And, and a vehicle for movement appeared. Yeah. So, that, so ships now um, were bringing supplies to Iceland from Scotland, and these cargo sh mini cargo ships, if you will, then were taking Icelandic horses to the mines in the Midland of England to haul coal out. And uh, so now you've got these ships going into Vapnafjord, going into Akareli, going into, you know, Sædisfjord or uh, Reykjavik, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so they have a way to get there. So my great-grandparents uh, came on a ship called Camoans from Vapnafjord to, to, um, to Edinburgh, Scotland to leave. And this is the same ship that took some of my relatives too. Exactly, and and uh, so they brought they brought horses that would never see the light of day because they'd be down in the mines, um, mining coal. Coal was powering these ships. It's a curious economic circle. Yeah, uh, you know, movement of people, and then and the, with as you know with the immigration story, they then would travel across to Glasgow and take a boat to Quebec and and, uh, and move. And move west, but um, so yeah. they had, they had a vehicle for escape, and they had the promise of new land, and they had dire conditions. So it's not unlike Northern Europe. I mean, you know, the Irish left a mass, the the Germans, the you know, the Swedes, the Finns, they all came at different times because of economic need. And I, but I keep coming back to the 
finality of that move and the the ability to make such huge decisions, knowing full well that they would never see that land or those people they left again. You have a great uh, comment about that in your book, Song for Leave, um, where you're discussing with the, the photos. like the, When these people standing on the ship and they get their photo taken right before the ship takes off, that you can see the terror on people's faces or, or the commitment or the what have you but just to imagine the, yeah like you say the finality of that kind of once their photos taken it's like there's no going back and <laughs> you're not getting off the ship now and it's about to take off and what a big decision yeah what a big decision it's curious you mentioned photography because that that picture just seals the deal in my book called the song for leave which is pairing my diary-esque entries with my reflections about a place and they're paired with a photograph of that place and this particular pairing has a picture of southern Akaredi where Cowan Julius was born and spent his early years. Akaredi, Iceland, 17 June 1993. 8 a.m. Icelandic Independence Day, shockingly clear. These negatives are going to be contrasty. My new friend, Gudmundur Inglesen, had warned me about staying in the city park. The kids will be partying, he said. I did, they did. Another sleepless night, but then no one seems to sleep here. It's only dark when you close your eyes. I expect that is a response to the dark, sleepful winters. This town was home to K.N., a poet who settled on a farm near Mountain, North Dakota. The town historian, said his house was there at the extreme end of old Akaredi. After 14 years there, his mom died and he moved in with her brother somewhere on a farm south of town for the next four years before heading to the New World. Guthmanger gave me a photo taken in the 1800s, late 1800s by Sigfus Amundsen of a group of emigrating Icelanders aboard a ship just offshore. The passengers were staring into the camera souls about to be taken, shocked. I expect both by the new medium and the realization that they were underwear, underway, their decision to move made. Amundsen was also an agent for the Allen Line, selling hundreds of one-way tickets to his countrymen. Was he aware that he might be letting the vital air out of the national balloon? Or maybe he thought he was just easing the Malthusian pressure. No, seldom are there such grand understandings. In all likelihood, he was just another poor photographer paying for his visual vice with a lucrative part-time job. So do you compare yourself to that photographer in any way? Do you think you would have done the same thing if you were him, just trying to get by and fulfill your visual vice as well? Well, I think that's a good question. Um, you know, I go out and make photographs because I have an interest in sort of a, a documentary idea or underpinning, you know, might be, it might be an oil boom, it might be um, finished made log structures, it might be landscapes, it might be German-Russian grave markers. So I have this interest in cultural history, but I also make them because they're um, an, a heightened experience. It's, it's kind of, I shouldn't say it's drug-like, but it's very satisfying to be so in the moment and uh, it's almost meditative, so there's something that kind of drives me to follow that feeling. 
and um, if something should sell, I try not to get the sales in front of it, but if something should sell, that buys more film for the next outing. Right. So it's not just one or the other. And in the case of Sigfus Amundsen, I mean, he was selling, he was advertising his business. He was selling one-way tickets to Icelanders emigrating. And he was making some good photographs. That's, that's interesting. Um, yeah, he had a monetary incentive to get people to go. And uh, people would go, and then they would take pictures there as well. They would have their photos taken in the U.S. when they could, and then they would send those back to Iceland. And from what I understand, the letters going back to Iceland for the first people who went really kicked off the boom for others to go as well. Because they're like, look, I know one person who went and they're okay. And here's a picture of them looking okay. Dressed up in their finest. Right. Little did they know maybe they were renting those fine clothes from the photographer or who knows, but... Or did they know what minus 30 would be <laughs> yeah. like? Could that possibly be communicated in the letters? Uh, who knows? And I think, you know, I, 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 I wonder too about, I, I did a project with Guthmundur Ingleson where I photographed Iceland and where he photographed where the Icelanders, he as an Icelander photographed where the Icelanders emigrated to. And, hmm. and so we were kind of looking at at the other place. And I think that attitude about the West Icelanders, those who settled here, and the Icelanders coming to terms with, well, what's it like from the other side? And, and that's something that's only come about in the last 25, 30 years. Prior to that, there was a separation. People left and they didn't come back. And people saw their relatives leave and didn't come back except for a letter about, we're doing really well, we're in a land of milk and honey. Well. It wasn't milk and honey, but it was better than maybe that or maybe or maybe this. So I think the tendency now to look both ways is is pretty interesting. It's pretty interesting to me. Uh, reading, uh, especially from this Vesterfather documentary, um, it explained that you know, in the beginning when people were leaving, there was a movement against that. Uh, from what I understand, it was like the rich people who were profiting in Iceland off of having all these indentured service, the small number of wealthy people in Iceland sort of made a media campaign against those who wanted to leave, saying if you leave you're a traitor to the country and you're no good, rotten, there's like a lot of nasty things said about those who wanted to leave. But then you had those companies uh, and, and that photographer whose businesses are to convince people that it would be a great idea to leave such an interesting battle. And I, I think that took place in, in other countries as well. Right. And there were, there were uh, people who had land to sell, had railroads who were encouraging immigration. Um, you know, all kinds of myths like uh, rain follows the railroad, and when the railroad goes down, there'll be great farming, and there were, there were agents who were recruiting groups of people in, in you know, Northern Europe, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, to emigrate, and, and they they came in groups, and they pretty much settled uh, amongst their own. To I think is one. It's familiar. The language was familiar. The customs were familiar, and also as a way of sort of preserving something of the homeland. Uh, it was sort of like a kind of this mosaic across 
across like North Dakota, you can look at the Ukrainian neighborhoods and the German-Russian neighborhoods, the Icelandic and the Norwegian and the Finns, etc. So just little pockets. And those are kind of meshing together now. And you're sort of losing some of that, uh, some of that flavor. Yeah. Can we jump ahead a little bit to the point in this story where suddenly it becomes taboo to speak Icelandic in North Dakota? Like, so I've heard lots of stories from people who are alive today who said they remember when they were little. Uh, well, one friend, her cousin came home with a black eye and he was beat up by the Norwegian kids for speaking Icelandic or he was just getting picked on uh, in North Dakota growing up. And they said, we can't speak this anymore. We need to assimilate and we're, we're American and we speak English and that's it. Did you experience anything like that? I, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but thinking back, it became, it became very clear that, that um, my parents wanted us to be Americans. And so I was, I'm a baby boomer. My brother was born in 46, me in 49. And, you know, we were the offspring of the great generation. And they came back to, to form fraternal clubs and community clubs, and they were great joiners, and, and let's, we're Americans. And so I think there was a concerted effort not to expose us to this other language. Um, so that's a huge change. It's, a, it's, it's huge from protecting your language, as the Icelanders wanted to, and, and having a committee at the university to not let foreign words into the language, uh, to we don't want them speaking it. And I became aware of Icelandic as a young person on the farm of Arne Johnson when the men would gather and after discussing weather and crops and cars, they would recite the poetry of Cowanelius in Icelandic. And they would laugh and have just a great time. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that was a good one. But how about the time Cowan did this? And then sometimes they would translate some of those uh, to English for those of us who were denied the, the Icelandic language. And uh, so I became fascinated with, I thought, you know, it'd be okay to be a man, you know, to speak two languages, to have your private language so you could talk about stuff with your mates or your spouse and the kids wouldn't know what you're talking about um you know that was that was an interesting concept but then to just enjoy poetry and enjoy literature and that that enjoyment of literature that oral tradition that written tradition was very strong amongst the icelanders so when i started traveling in iceland in the early 90s 1990s you would see a, a monument to Stefan Gay Stephenson out in the countryside. You see a monument to this poet or that poet, not statesmen, not warriors, uh, with the exception of Johan Sigurdsson. Um, but they were, um, you know, they loved their language. Yeah, wow. So today, now that the language is slipping, slipping, almost gone in North America, do you think those, the people who are still left, do they? read any poetry anymore even in English or is uh, when the language went their love for language went too well there's there's this was a topic that Bill Holm thought and cared a lot about um, and when Bill and I were doing our research on Cowan Ulias 
I would usually be driving, um, and Bill would be reading and reaching into his bag for something else to, for me to eat and him, him to eat. And, uh, and he'd usually be on some kind of topic. Some he'd be railing against one thing or another, but one of his favorite topics, and he was, his writing is kind of like he's preaching. I mean, he wants to improve us and this is how it should be done. And, and he did it, of course, in a, such an artful, yeah. artful, enjoyable, playful way. Yeah. But, uh, one particular trip, he was, uh, he was on about no one memorizes poetry. And, um, he went on and on. So when I got home, our daughter was about five or six. And, uh, this is Leave, our, our daughter. And, and we, we got back in, you know, and traveling with Bill, you ate too much, you drank too much, you just didn't sleep enough. And he was type A constantly on something, reading <laughs> this, reading that. Anyway, I got home, I, I said, leave, I'm, I'm going to teach you a poem, and it's one of Bill's poems. So I, I taught her one of Bill's poems, and leave then was about two and a half feet high, three feet high. Bill was six, five, six, six, and she called him Big Bill. So Bill calls me on the phone, Lee picks up the phone and said, uh, yes, and then she said, Daddy, it's Big Bill, it's Big Bill. I said, tell him the poem, tell him the poem. And she said, Bill, I wish I could do this in a five-year-old voice, but I, I can't do a five-year-old girl voice. <laughs> Bill, I've got a poem for you. It's called The Pig. I've lain in the mud all day, softening the bristles on my back, combing my ears against the box elder tree until they stand up straight and pink. Now I'm going into the darkness to prepare for love. And I, honest, this sounds exaggerated but it, it's true it's almost I, I could hear him yelling in the phone through my daughter's ears and coming out the other ear and she said daddy i think he wants to talk to you and she handed me the phone and bill said i want to marry her <laughs> wow yeah i'm glad someone could prove him wrong about uh the fact that no one memorizes poetry anymore but and, and when when bill holm and david arneson would get together they would hold forth on on one thing and another, and uh, and late into the evening, after a, f a few uh, bumps of whiskey, they would be reciting poetry, and it was it was something to behold because it was just it was just three of us, and it was um, it was grand, it was grand. Now I've, there's there's one poem about Bill and David Arneson that I could read now that I think is going to work someplace. Sure. Gimli, Manitoba, 2nd of August, 1991. The light is strong without being too hard, and we're cooled by a faint welcome wind. It's a good day to make pictures in this calm before the storm. Bill drives and David Arneson directs us back to his cabin on Willow Point. We've come in waves from all directions, like Norse invaders to robustly celebrate our heritage. Earlier in the day, we visited Sandy Bar, the site Gutormer Gutormson made famous in his epic battle of Icelandic settlement. There we found one lone fisherman, an old man of Ukrainian descent, putting his gear into the back of his old half-ton pickup. David was talking to him. I was making a photograph, and Bill was rustling around in the car. He returned with a copy of Gutormer's poem, which he read to the three of us with the passion that the work deserved. 
Once a walk at midnight taking, gusts of rain around me shaking, sky and earth alight and quaking. Poetry lived there for a moment. Bill and David discussed, argued, and alternately held forth on a variety of topics from postmodernism to politics to recipes for Icelandic desserts. <laughs> These were not men of weak opinion, nor were the reverends Jon Bjarnason and Paul Thorlaksen. Strong differences on desserts can be tolerated, but not religion. Jon and his band stayed in Gimli in 1878 when Paul took his followers south across some of the best farmland in North America until they came to the rise on the west edge of the river valley and like puffins settled there amongst the rocks. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that likening them to puffins because you're going in about their like disagreements and all this heavy human stuff and then they're just like yeah but they're basically just like the puffins just looking for anywhere to survive yeah and the puffins are miserable flyers <laughs> yeah. they just they're just kind of beeline they can mainly just sort of do that you know they're, yeah. they're kind of buffoonish like people and i think to send a little puffin out to sea is a great metaphor for what's coming mm -hmm. i mean uh, Who's the puffin here? It, it, on one hand, it seems like the migrants who left Iceland going to the New World, they're kind of like the puffins being sent off by their countrymen and whomever. Good luck out there, you know. And hopefully to make it through, because the puffins stay out of sea for a couple of years, and then they come back to their nesting place. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, what? so it's we're, we're launching the next generation out. And, and going out to sea, as, as a puffin to survive by yourself and learn these things and hopefully mature and then repeat this process. I mean, I, I think of the, um, they didn't, you know, some real estate agent just say, oh, come to Iceland, you're going to like it. You know, there were three different accounts of people going there and uh, one called it Schneeland, you know, Snowland. Um, one, uh, an ancestor of mine, called it the, the, the grass drips with butter. And he was given the nickname so-and-so, the butter. <laughs> yeah. And so he had to kind of live with that. And then there's another account of, of, of a ship leaving the pharaohs and uh, have three ravens aboard. And they let one go and it flies back to the Faroe Islands. And a little while later... Um, lets another go and it circles the ship for a while and comes back to the ship. And a little while later, they let the third go and it heads off towards Iceland and they follow it. So, I mean, that, that was their navigational uh, capability at the time. Yeah. I mean, they could determine, um, they couldn't figure out literally north and south. They could figure out east and west navigationally. And even they, they had something called a runic... Um, or Viking compass, but it wasn't a navigational compass. It was just a combination of these runic staves that um, would help you safely get home. Mm. And again, it's a sort of a, a metaphor for someone's looking over your shoulder mm. and this will get you safely home. It didn't tell you to get from point A to point B mm. and, you know, turn left at this, at this, uh, <laughs> yeah. at this intersection. Right. Wow, if the puffins can do this, and they've done it for thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, I don't know, uh, 
then you know you would hope the human beings would be able to do it as well but actually when they were told to go it must have been way harder right like the puffins knew how to do it they may not have been quite as afraid as the immigrants were but there was, it was a it was a unique time in history as i guess most of them are but this this idea of of settlement and moving west um you know has changed and i think with the uh with the end of the gimli experiment the holy the, the that was a significant time historically because you had you know people moving to to winnipeg to grand forks to fargo to minneota the war breaks out they're moving to seattle the immigration across canada that grand experiment um um, changed significantly. Can you explain Paul and Yon and Gimli, they split, Paul comes to Mountain, but then even those who came to Mountain a couple decades later had their own falling out and dividing the community there. I know some, and some was just sort of naive observations growing up in Mountain, but later when Bill Holm and I started doing our research on Cowan, it became more clear, like in the little town of Garter, south of Mountain, there are two Icelandic Lutheran churches within sight of one another. And in Mountain, there's the Vicar Lutheran Church, the oldest Icelandic Lutheran Church in North America, which just sits on land that Paul Thorlogson donated to it. And then there's the Thingle Lutheran Church, which is south of there. And it always struck me, struck me as kind of odd that that should be that way when I started to think about why why not unite and there are different cemeteries for each of those. A friend of my dad, Sigmar was his last name, a minister from the Seattle area and his brother the same, were the kids of Harold Sigmar who was dubbed in the Iceland Lutheran Church uh, the Great Unifier. And I thought, well, the Unifier of what exactly? And um, so, Backing this up, Thorlogsen, who had uh, was trained in the Norwegian Synod, uh, were literalists. They believed in the the Bible being word for word the way things are, and the Icelandic take was a little more liberal. And uh, Paul Thorlogsen's good friend, Jon Bjarnason, was in that camp, and these were dear friends. But their, their religions took them in different ways. They respected one another, but there were differences. To make a long story short, uh, they both ended up in Gimli. And their differences grew, and there was a, a division there. Thorlogsen leaves and settles in Mountain, and Bjarnason stays with the Icelandic group there. But there was, there was this rift that split the community. So, I'm walking around Mountain with Bill Holm, and we're wondering about this. And one of our main contacts, a man named Arnie Johnson, who knew a lot about Cowan Julius, and um, and he, he was um, he was more of a free thinker or, or a Unitarian. I thought that was that was odd. He just didn't, and he wouldn't go to any funerals, and because uh, he just didn't like. I don't know if it was the church or the idea of the funerals, but regardless, he was kind of there. So we would ask him about 
why are there two churches here and why are there two cemeteries here? And uh, really couldn't get anything definitive out of him, but he knew. And it wasn't until later, more or less a couple months later, that um, a mother of a friend of mine from Mountain put her finger in my chest and said, your great-grandfather sued my grandfather <laughs> for the property of the church. And I said, what? <laughs> and so that was, a, that was a lightning bolt for me. Yeah. I said, okay, so I get it now why there's two churches in these places, because this rift between Thorlogsen and Bjarnason continued. One was, um, uh, has what they call a plenary uh, disposition about everything in the Bible is word for word true, and one is sort of more liberal. And that rift continued. And so after getting the finger in the chest, I started researching legal records to see what what I could find. And I spent a fair amount of time in the courthouse in Cavalier, North Dakota, looking through court cases from 1910 and came across um, a legal case called Goodmanson et al. versus the thing of a Lutheran church. <laughs> and so my great-grandfather, on behalf of those literalists, uh, sued the majority of his congregation, the thing of a Lutheran church, for the coffers and the property in the church. Wow. And this went to the court case and, and legal battles here and there in Cavalier and in Grand Forks and Sigebjorn, and the ruling at that lower level, court level, was in favor of, of Sigebjorn and the, um, the literalists, if you will. So Sigebjorn, my great-grandfather, dies thinking that he's one on God's behalf. And they were granted ownership of the church. It was theirs, yeah. And so that was a legal decision. Several months later, it goes to the Supreme Court of North Dakota and is overturned. So the people who were with Sigebjorn Goodmanson had to fork over $960, which is a huge amount of money. Mm -hmm. And there's a story there, who were they and how did they do it? But that rift split families, split the community, and you can imagine the church being the social, the religious, yeah. the educational cornerstone of those communities was just torn in half. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when the next minister appears, you know, Harold Sigmar, Harold Sigmar appears. He's working on kind of bringing this community back together. But, you know, someone poked a finger in my chest in, you know, 2005, and this is a long time ago. This right. is almost a hundred years ago. There's still this, emotions there. Yeah, emotions there that go back to Thorlogsen and um, Bjarnason, which then go back to the Norwegian. Synod, Icelandic, or, uh, Lutheran Synod, and the Icelandic position. And, and that just keeps going. And then there's another branch of that. Stephen Gay Stephenson, who settled in Canada, one of the, the people who you'll see a statue uh, in Iceland along the road, a well published person, uh, good friends with both Paul and Jon, um, takes an even more liberal position and uh, they forms a cultural society, which then becomes aligned with the Unitarian Church. Uh, and I think that's, um, the free thinkers are kind of in there somewhere, right. but you have these three positions. 
um, all circulating at the same time and argued and acted upon very aggressively, but curiously, especially in these times, respectfully. They respected one another. Interesting. You can have these opinions and you're dead wrong, damn it, but um, I still respect you because mm. you're dedicated and you're informed in your own way. So that is such an interesting story. And the way they disagreed, and even if they respected each other, these disagreements probably had a serious impact on the Icelanders in North America as a whole community being able to stick together and, and retain any of that community. Right? Oh, I think it, it, fractured, it fractured the community. Right. If they came as a whole to Canada with this grand idea of starting a new republic in, in Canada for Icelanders only, the guy who wanted to form the colony in Alaska, he had some big ideas of thinking that Icelandic was going to become the number one language in North America. They like really wanted to catch that on. And he, he had plans to have colonies from Alaska all the way down to Los Angeles. <laughs> like, so New Iceland is sort of different. It's uh, this in, in uh, Manitoba. But yeah, to go from that dream of we're going to be so united down to the fact that even the ones in Gimli broke in half, and then even the ones who got the mountain broke in half, and then even there, there were probably some other disagreements we don't even really know about, and they divided themselves so far that they were just powerless and to, to keep the Icelandic community together today. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that this idea of respect for one another exists on one plane, independent of the damage that they're causing to one another. Yeah, that is interesting. You'd think they were trying to destroy each other, but this respect they had for each other shows they probably weren't doing that. And yet, now, almost none of those groups exist at all anymore. No, and I think, I think if you look at the place, the role of the, of the church in Mountain, for instance, the role it plays in the community, versus the role it played back then, um, you know, that's changed. I mean, we've, they've gone a long, a long ways. And I think, I think the, the other rift that comes to mind is um, in the year 1000 when um, Iceland was part of, part of Norway and it was, uh, they went to the all thing and they said, you know, you will switch to Christianity, which was Catholicism. Um, and you will give up the pagan religion. And the, the speaker of the all thing went under, quote, a rug or a, a, in his tent for three days and considered this whole thing and came out with the final decision, which was, we will become Christians. But whatever you do in your own household is up to you. Right. So, so you know, and so you have, I mean, even uh, uh, Godefoss, Falls of the Gods is where you should throw those pagan icons into it to be done with. But that never quite left. There's still, there's still, you know, in the sagas and even, even today, there's still a contingent of, of, of people respecting and considering the old the pagan religion. In this uh, Song of the Vikings book here by Nancy Marie Brown, 
learning about how Snorri Sturluson, who himself, 200 years later, was the law speaker, during that time, he helped popularize the concept of Odin as the god of gods, right? Getting everybody on this god of god concepts, A, primed them to accept Christianity and uh, to have kings. It's interesting that uh, Sturluson was sort of stake his territory for how he wanted this stuff to be considered. And hence the two, the, the two ravens, you know, Hogan and Mogan, right? And one is memory, one is... Knowledge? Knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, and they would scour the, scour the world over and bring this information back to him. Yeah, so wow, there's so many... I, I need to read all these books over again for me to fully understand and memorize these facts better that I'm trying to regurgitate right now, but the, the thing that's clear is like how all these stories overlap in a ton of ways and how everyone who wrote anything at any point had their own objectives and their own understanding of all this stuff and their, uh, their own uh, unique audiences they were trying to communicate this to. That's, that, I think, is one of the golden threads here. Yeah. Is, is that how we can kind of get at that in a succinct way. Um, but I think the pieces are on the table. <laughs> right. Literally. It just may forever be uh, an unfinished puzzle. You know, or no, but a I, work I, in progress. I think I haven't seen anything that kind of lays out a chronology of like this in the Icelandic community that we're in. So I, th I think it's it's worth giving it some thought. Okay, thanks for sticking with us, everybody. I, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, it's left us with a lot to think about, and we want to make clear that we, we have no answers to any of these big questions. We have instead a lot of questions uh, ourselves. So Wayne and I have discussed a plan to continue working on this little investigation of ours, just adding what we can to the work that's been done by so many to investigate this deep story about Icelandic emigration and its effect on all of us today. So we have exchanged some books, and as I am boarding a plane to move to Europe for a couple years, I've uh, borrowed a couple of his books and I've given him a couple of mine, and uh, we are going to be continuing to research this topic, and we really want to ask your help to send us more books or more stories uh, you can provide about this that might help us understand. And we can start sharing, working on this story uh, together even more. So, But what we need from you, from our dear viewers and friends with Icelandic roots, we are seeking anecdotes, stories, documents, books, or references of any kind regarding a few different things. Anything we've talked about in this episode, but specifically to boil them down to three things, we're looking for data regarding the religious and legal divisions within the Icelandic community of North America, as they've been discussed here, the the disagreements between Paul and Jón and Stefan and uh, down to this North Dakota Supreme Court case that happened in Mountain. Uh, we were looking for stories about the stigmatization of the use of the Icelandic language in North America. I really want to know if more people have had a similar experience where at one point they were told not to speak Icelandic. And uh, if that's part of the reason why we're all struggling to regain the language today. 
And as always, finally, we are looking for more local poetry. If you or your loved one has claimed to be a poet, as most of our ancestors have, it seems, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your poetry. Send us your grandma's poetry, your great-grandma's poetry. We want to see what you got and share them and uh, make some new poetry moving forward. We, We can keep this tradition going if we work together. So thanks again. That's it for me. We'll see you next time at Icelandic Roots. This episode was created and produced by Natalie Guttormsen and Will Beaton. Thank you always to Lindy Voppenfjord for allowing us to play his song, Give Some Love, during our introduction. And thank you to Wayne Goodmanson for taking the time to talk with us. You can learn more about Icelandic culture and heritage on our website, www.icelandicroots.com, by signing up for our newsletter and by following Icelandic Roots on social media. Every month, Icelandic Roots hosts a series of events both for members only and the general public. On October 21st, we're hosting a free webinar in English that is open to the public. Join us as Gudrun Bjarnadottir shares her knowledge about Icelandic plants, wool, and the process of dyeing the wool with natural colors from Icelandic nature. On November 4th, we're pleased to announce a members-only webinar exclusive with author Christina Sunley. Have you ever wanted to move beyond your genealogy research to tell the compelling stories that lurk in your Icelandic family tree? Maybe you've tried but got stalled along the way, or maybe you don't even know where to start. Join us with Christina Sunley for a webinar that will cover some key principles of family history storytelling, like how to create dramatic tension that will keep your readers turning the page. We'll look at how to mine the Icelandic Roots database for the fascinating details, first-hand accounts, and historical context that will bring your ancestors' world to life on the page. For more information on these events and future events, please visit our website, www.icelandicroots.com. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. We're currently available for listening on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and Audible, and on the Podbean app. Our featured song for this episode is called Owl Ice Cream Landi, To Ice Cream Land. Lyrics written by Cowan and music and performance by Bagaluter. Þar sem báran suðar létt við sand Og sólin gillir bæði haf og land Og aldin glóa veikum gul og rauð Og engin maður þarf að líða Jafnan fylgi þér Ég sé þig aftur sýtna Vinur kær
Ólokser þessi dabra ævitví Há dauðastund er hinsta óskin mín Úr frostrósum mér fléttið lítinn krans Og flýtið mig svo heim Til Ice Cream Land